0: Amen. Isn't that a great hymn? Let me ask you to be seated as we come to yet another message on Daniel chapter 9. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That is not how we would go about introducing an evangelistic presentation to someone that we suspect is unsaved. We have a different theological perspective that would lead us to a different approach but when it comes to god loves you and has a wonderful love for your life and that person is in the kingdom of god then that really is a glorious truth isn't it think about this we come alongside one another to bear a burden and yes we are to empathize with the sufferer Yes, we are to sympathize, uh, we are to listen, we are to serve. But as is appropriate, we also can come alongside that brother and, or sister and say, in the midst of this trial, God still loves you. And though you may be struggling with his plan right now, He has good for you. And the future that He has for you is indeed wonderful. God loves His people. And God has a wonderful plan for His people. Now I have to tell you, there's a rub here. And I I feel that rub personally. Oftentimes my experience with God's plan in real time in the midst of my life is that it doesn't feel all that wonderful to me. And if I am honest with myself and frank with you, the congregation, I sometimes feel as though Intellectually and theologically, I know God loves me, but sometimes it feels like He doesn't love me. Things in this life can create in me a sense of worry. When I contemplate the future, there are times where I can be fearful. God's plan oftentimes is not only mysterious as it is worked out in my life, but also perplexing. Rarely have I ever, to my remembrance, become angry with God, where I have raised my fist at Him. In fact, I really struggle. I'm sure there has been an occasion where I've done that. I just can't recall it. But I will say that I have throughout my life questioned God as if to say in light of experiencing in real time the outworking of God's plan for me God do you really know what you are doing Intellectually, theologically, I know God loves me. Intellectually, theologically, I know God has a wonderful plan for my life. But do you, like me, sometimes struggle with it? Where it doesn't feel like God loves us? Where God's plan for us sometimes be quite open with you stinks. So I need, I need passages like Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27 to encourage me that God loves me and that he he has a wonderful plan for my life. This passage centers me to have a realistic perspective on my life today in light of God's love and in light of God's plan. And I tend to think that this is one of God's chief purposes in answering Daniel the way that he answered Daniel in these verses that are before us today, verses 24 through 27. In other words, God wanted Daniel to know God saying, Daniel, I love you and I love my people. And Daniel, I have a wonderful plan for you and for my people. Daniel, my beloved son, trust me. Now, what I want you to do, you don't have to say this, just think this, but I want you to take out Daniel's name and I want you to insert your name. God says, insert your name. I love you and my church. And I have a wonderful plan for you and my church and my beloved, insert your name, trust me, with regards to the plan and the timetable that I have laid out. And that really is what we want to talk about uh, today as we look again to Daniel chapter 9. And just a brief review as we look at at the chapter as a whole, we are reminded that Daniel prayed a prayer that is provided for us in verses 1 through 19. And really, the, the point of that prayer was Daniel petitioning God to show mercy, to forgive his sinful people yet again, and to fulfill the glorious promise that was the, really the focal point of Daniel's life, to restore his people, to restore God's temple in Jerusalem, and to restore the city. And then last week, we came to God giving the purpose and the reason for answering Daniel. You remember that the angel Gabriel was dispatched by God. He swiftly came even before Daniel had said amen. The the answer came in verses 20 through 23. And God said, Daniel, I am going to reveal to you knowledge and insight about the future, about this, this complete restoration that is my plan for you and the people of God And by the way, Daniel, this plan that I have is much better than you can ever hope for or imagine. And the reason God gives, verse 23. And I hope last week, if you were here, that you didn't miss just how precious this was, where God said to Daniel, "For you are greatly loved." Isn't that precious? Can manly men say precious? I hope that really impresses powerfully upon your heart and your soul. That if you are part of God's family through saving faith in Jesus Christ, the one who we've already sung about, the one whom we've already spoken about, the one who we've already celebrated about, God says, you... Are greatly loved. God loves you. And like Daniel, he shows Daniel that indeed he does have a wonderful plan. Now, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. That's the reputation the 70 weeks passage has. Again, reflecting from last week, just in summary fashion, there are two primary approaches to this passage. One is to take the term 70 weeks or 77s as being literally 490 days of this. There are two popular views. One really isn't so popular, but it is a view that's out there that that all of this prophecy is fulfilled in the 2nd century B.C. at the death of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. There's another view that's a literal view that has gained some popularity in, in our modern era, that of dispensationalism, that takes this this this, this term seventy sevens and views it literally, but yet they craft a scheme that basically takes the whole meaning of this and pushes it off into the future seven years prior to jesus 's return, the time of the great tribulation and so the prophecy is about the events of that great tribulation before Jesus comes, and also about the thousand year reign after Jesus comes, and the whole point, the whole meaning of the prophecy. Is the restoration of ethnic Israel, and so I believe we believe in the more reformed uh, tradition that this is very problematic these these literal views. The other prime, main approach is to take that term seventy sevens or seventy weeks and to view it figuratively or symbolically and one, and e- even here we find some some differences in how people understand that one view. Puts the prophecy really pointing to 70 A.D. and the, the events in the first century with Jesus' first advent. Another view ac- acknowledges the events of 70 A.D. but thinks the primary meaning is, is in the, in the uh, days approaching the second coming of Christ. There's another view that sees this prophecy really being about the first advent of Christ and the events of 70 A.D. but also looking beyond that uh, to his second coming as well and the reason I mention all this is simply to show there's a lot of disagreement about the interpretation of this passage and one of the sad things for me and something I hope that I avoid as we spend time together this passage is not to get caught up in all of the nuances and details and miss seeing Jesus (laughs) because it's a glorious passage about the ministry of Messiah And the hope that that we have is God giving us really a glimpse into the future. So here's my perspective. This is where I I roost, so to speak, with regards uh, to this passage. The prophecy is about Jesus, Messiah. It It is about his first advent and especially the events of 70 A.D., but it's about... Events beyond uh, the first century, as Jesus accomplished all the work necessary to establish the new covenant, the Messianic age, and so the scope of this passage, the scope of the seventieth week, for example, extends even uh, further, even until until the second coming of Christ, as it as it shows us just how sufficiently Jesus has fulfilled all the Old Testament types and shadows. That pointed to Messiah, indeed, Jesus is Messiah, and the new covenant age has come. Let's read the text, chapter nine, verses twenty-four through twenty-seven. You can turn in your Bibles and read along with me, or look it up on your iPhone. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. "...to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again... With squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. Now, as we look at these three verses, I would suggest to you that what God is wanting Daniel to know, the insight that Daniel had, or that God has for Daniel can be broken up into three primary insights, and one is God wanted Daniel to know something about his appointed timetable. Secondly, God wanted Daniel to know something about the necessary work to accomplish this complete restoration. And thirdly, God wanted Daniel to know the result of this work, and that is fulfillment of God's people being restored. Now today we're just looking at the first point, the appointed timetable that God communicated very clearly to Daniel in the 70 weeks passage let us pray our father again we come to this passage acknowledging that there is absolutely nothing in error at all with this passage in heaven this passage is abundantly clear and if there's any problem with our understanding it, it's a problem with us not with the author and so we acknowledge the inerrancy and authority and perpetuity of your word and rest upon it and so we come as those who are limited in knowledge limited in, in skill and ability to interpret but yet you've given us God the Holy Spirit to to apply your word to our hearts and to illumine our hearts and minds to see what you would have for us in this passage and so we ask God the Holy Spirit do that work today we pray in Christ's name Amen. When Renee and I were working through the process of deciding, should we go to seminary or not go to seminary, and I've shared this story before, but I'll, I'll share it again, the, the, the question, is this the right thing to do, really plagued me. I mean, it was a huge step. My whole career in academics up to that time was to, was to prepare myself for a career in the sciences. And so going to seminary meant that I would have to give up what I had worked for so hard for all those years in school. And then as I contemplated actually going to seminary, I thought, well, that's a scary proposition. I know a little bit more what's in store for me as a chemist. I know very little about what's in store for me as a seminarian. And so as we were processing through that, Decision. I went to my pastor, Dr. Hoke, who's now with the Lord, and and Don encouraged me. Tim, God has rarely shown me, said Don, his plan, even even as little as two or three months in advance. I really he's never given me a a long-term view of his the details of his plan for me specifically. And he said, pray study God's word, get godly counsel, and then get moving. He said, you can't steer a parked car. That was the best advice I think I've ever gotten. (laughs) You can't steer a parked car. That's so obvious. But at the time, I was parked. I was in reverse. (laughs) And God used Don to really help me. And I think Don's statement to me really is a modern-day paraphrase of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lay not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. So, Renee and I set off for seminary, went up to New England. And it wasn't until my last semester of seminary, after four years of study, I still did not know what God wanted me to do specifically with this seminary degree that I was hoping to actually attain. I was still in seminary at the time. Last semester, senior year, and God gave me a sense of, Tim, I'm calling you to the pastoring. And so as, I've, as I have reflected upon this, it is the case that God rarely gives us advance notice of the details of his plan for you and me, though he's completely in control of everything. And so we have two options here. One option is to worry and fear, And the other option is what? To trust him. Now here's the Christian life. We don't take one of those options. We take them both. We worry and fear and we trust God. I mean, have you ever come to that place? That's what I do most of the time. Let's just admit it. But I'm impressed as we look at Daniel with the detail and specificity of that God provided for Daniel in this plan of restoration in the future. And God was not saying, okay, Daniel, you're in the 6th century, and I'm going to show you what my plan is for the 5th century. The way I understand this passage is God is saying, Daniel, you're in the 6th century, and I'm going to basically show you my plan for human history. Now, that's long-term planning, isn't it? And so today we want to look at this, this timetable that God has set up. This is the first insight that God gave to, to Daniel. I like what E.J. Young, the great Old Testament scholar, who's also with the Lord long, long since departed this, this life, and now is with God in eternity, he said this, a definite period of time, that is what God decreed, a definite period of time, for the accomplishment of all that is necessary for the true restoration of God's people from bondage. That's what God decreed. That's what God revealed to Daniel. And he revealed it in this phrase that has gotten so much uh, news and publicity in the, in the world of prophecy in our modern times. Seventy weeks of course, I prefer the term 77s because I understand that term being to be taken symbolically or figuratively, not days of weeks, but symbolically periods of time where God will work out the six things he mentions in verse 24, the six works. Let's say it now, the six works of Christ in verse 24, that he will work those things out during this decreed time period and the details of those six works of Christ are shown in verses 26 and 27 so there is a great deal of specificity here but all of this God is saying Daniel this is how I'm going to restore my people in just these three verses can you believe it we have a panoramic view of the, the history of redemption, we could say that. And also as we look at verse 25, we see that God seems to be indicating to Daniel that his plan is going to be worked out over three stages, three, three periods. And so I want to look just briefly at the stages. First of all, stage one, the first stage, seven sevens in verse 25. If you've got your Bibles open, you can look at that. It may say seven weeks, but seven sevens, that is stages one through seven, begin with Cyrus's decree. There's some debate about Cyrus, Darius. Let's take that to be the same figure, the one that came and conquered uh, Belshazzar of Babylon and instituted the Medo-Persian Empire. But, but Cyrus's decree here that... He gave in 538 B.C. that allowed for God's people to return from exile to uh, Jerusalem. And this is the meaning, meaning of the phrase in verse 25, from the going out of the word, that is from the going out of Cyrus's decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 36 and verses 22 through 23. I want to read a, a brief passage that, that is a historical account of Cyrus's decree. 2 Chronicles 36, 22 and 23. We see the exact same account given in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that... Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Again, the same account in Ezra 1, 1 through 4. What a sovereign God we have that would take a secular leader like Cyrus and sovereignly use him as part of his timetable. To bring about a complete restoration of his people. And so the, the book of, of Ezra covers the, the first wave of exiles that returned under the great leader Zerubbabel and the priest Jeshua. And they returned to Jerusalem according to Cyrus's decree, and they rebuilt the temple. And the historical evidence seems to point to the temple being completed in 516 B.C. And then as we turn to the latter part of the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, we find that a second wave returned to Jerusalem from captivity. And this was under the leadership of Nehemiah. And it was according to Artaxerxes' decree in 445 B.C. Here again, God using another secular leader. To bring about his purposes. And of course we, we know the story of Nehemiah who returned to rebuild the wall. And there's good evidence to point to the fact that by 400 B.C. That the wall and the city had been completely restored. With the temple being there restored in the midst of that city. And so that's the first stage. Seven sevens, stages one through seven. But there's a second period, a second stage that we find in verse 25. After this restoration was complete, as we've already talked about in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the second stage of 62 sevens will come about. Look at verse 25. The last part of verse 25 says, it shall be built again with squares and moat. The moat could refer to the wall being built as a moat, as a defensive structure, the wall being a defensive structure. But nonetheless, you see that the city will be built up, the the wall that made it the city and the squares where the populace could inhabit it. But it says in verse 25, this will take place in a troubled time. Now, I immediately, when when we read that passage and and we hear troubled time, we immediately go to Nehemiah. You remember if you study Nehemiah, That as they were trying to rebuild that wall, which they did by, they returned in 445 B.C. And the wall was completed in 445 B.C. I mean, it was a a miraculous reconstruction project. But they were opposed at every turn, weren't they? The governors and the satraps and, and the local rulers, they were not at all happy with that wall being rebuilt. And they opposed Nehemiah. And God prevailed, didn't he? But I think it can be also applied that these were troubled times to the entire period of 62 sevens. And the period of 62 seven ends with the coming of the anointed one that we'll read about in just a moment in verse 26. In other words, from the from the 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 decree of Cyrus all the way to Jesus' coming, the people of God were in a troubled time. And they needed Messiah, didn't they? And now we come to the third stage. Seven sevens, 62 sevens, my math is correct, equaling 69 sevens. We have one more seven, the 70th week. We find that in verse 26. The 70th seven brings to conclusion the 69th week. And now the 70th week takes place. There's good reason to date the beginning of the 70th week with John's baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, for John's baptism of Jesus in the Jordan was the commissioning of Jesus in his public ministry as Messiah. But regardless of the the specifics of when you date the 70th week beginning, the point is The anointed one came, and that begins this final week in the prophecy that we have before us today. And as I said earlier, there are two primary ways to understand this, that that 70th week is concluded in the first century, that it's all about the events of 70 A.D. There's another view, one To which I subscribe that says, yes, it is about the events of the first century. It is about the events of 70 AD. And we'll look at that next week. But it also goes beyond 70 AD as Jesus inaugurated and instituted and established the Messianic age. And so there you have it. 70 weeks. 77s. God's timetable. And next week, we'll look at the work and hopefully the fulfillment. But I want to end our time today by simply, maybe not so simply, asking the question, why did God want Daniel to have this appointed timetable, to have this schedule in, of history in his mind and in his heart As Daniel in the 6th century looked to the future with his greatest desire being that the physical people of God would live once again in Jerusalem, a restored city, and worshiping at that rebuilt temple. Why did God want Daniel to have this, this timetable of the future? As I said earlier about my seminary decision process, and maybe you have similar stories, God really doesn't give us oftentimes a whole lot of advance notice with regards to how he is going to specifically and particularly work out his his plan. But let me say this, God always gives us exactly what he wants us to know. What he gave Daniel was exactly what God wanted Daniel to know. And for us to know, by the way, because <laughs> he's speaking to us today about this 70 weeks business. And I can say with full confidence that... Even though, I stru- even though I have a combination of worry and fear and trust as I contemplate the future, God gives me exactly, God gives me the knowledge and insight about his plan for me in the future and his plan for the church in the future. He gives me exactly what he wants me to know. Do you have that same conviction? Somebody say amen. Do I need to wake you up? And so, for example, the, the, the passage that Carl read today from Matthew chapter 10, this is something that God wants us to know as we consider our own life. I mean, we probably read this, and, and, if, and if you're like me, you read it, and you kind of go, yeah, that, that, that's great. But there are those times in my life, perhaps, where I need to remember that I, that I am more value than a sparrow to God. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head, and it's getting easier for God to count the number of hairs on my head, by the way, are all numbered. (laughs) Fear not, therefore. You are more valuable to God than many sparrows. There have been times in my life where I felt like I was of no value to anyone, and yet God wants me to know this with regards to the way I look in my life, the perspective I have of my life today, and my life in the future. So God gives us the knowledge and insights that we need in His Word, exactly what we need. Well, another seminary professor made a huge impact on me in one class, another Old Testament scholar, talked about Meredith Klein last week, now this is Doug Stewart, and Dr. Stewart is a great Old Testament scholar taking an Old Testament overview class from, from Doug, and and, and, he's, and we were talking about prophetic literature and you know how we can, we can get so bogged down with numbers and dates and we want to get everything figured out. And, and he said, you know what, God has given us a blueprint and that blueprint is not detailed, but it's exactly enough that God has given us. So in, in other words, what God is saying, here's my blueprint with regards to the future. This is what I want you to know so that you will know I've got it. I've got a plan, I've got the ability to bring it about, and I'm going to bring it back. You trust me. And brothers and sisters, this is where we come down today. It's not about which view is better to understand the seven weeks passage. I think what God is saying, Daniel, is I've given you a timetable, Daniel. I've given you knowledge and insight about my plan And you're not going to figure out everything. That's not my purpose. I've given you enough to know that I'm in control. I've got it. Daniel, you trust me. Daniel, you are greatly loved. I love you, Daniel. And Daniel, I have a wonderful plan for your life. And that same plan is for all of my people. And my plan is a restoration that today you simply cannot comprehend, Daniel. It's greater than you can ever imagine. And now I want to ask you to do this. I want to ask you to take out Daniel's name and put your name in the blank. God says to you, fill in your name. I greatly love you. And all my people. And I have a wonderful plan for you. As I do for my church. Dear beloved. Fill in your name. Trust me. Amen. Father in heaven. Our prayer is simply to this. Forgive us of our worry and fear as we look to the future. Forgive us of our questioning that indeed you do have it. You've got a plan. Forgive us, Father, for bucking your plan and being all self-centered about it. Lord, forgive us of all of that. But Lord, more than anything else, just help us to be assured of who you are and the plan that you have, that you've got it. And enable us to trust you for Jesus' sake. For your glory we pray. Amen.